Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Our returning guest, Charlie Lineweaver, he's an associate professor at Australian National University. And we're going to talk about uh, cancer. Even though he's a physicist, he has some unique insights into cancer. So, Charlie, thank you for coming back. Thank you very much. Yes, you would. Um, so your background is as a physicist, as I understand. But how did you get involved with, uh, you know, looking into cancer? Well, I, basically, I was started out as a cosmologist. I was stud- I uh, was uh, analyzing the data from the COBE satellite and the cosmic microwave background. And my PhD supervisor at Berkeley was uh, George Smoot, and he won the Nobel Prize uh, for our work on the microwave background. And uh, but in 1995, when people started to detect exoplanets, I followed that research very closely. And I because I had lots of data analyst skills, I said, hey, they're not doing this right. They should be combining this data. And so I got into exoplanet data analysis. Now, interestingly, this is also when just at the time when they found ALH 84001, that was the Martian meteorite that ostensibly had some fossil life in it. So life on Mars or ancient Mars had been detected. And so this this prompted lots of money to go into astrobiology at NASA. And so astrobiology became a thing. So I, and I was, I almost uniquely qualified to study astrobiology because my dad was a high school biology teacher. So I had literally grown up with skeletons and models of DNA in the closet. So I knew much more biology than any cosmologists and much more cosmology than any biologist. So I called myself a cosmobiologist. Now, interestingly, at the same time, that's when I met Paul Davies. And he was getting interested in astrobiology as well. And so essentially, you had two cosmologists becoming very interested in astrobiology. Now, the thing about astrobiology is that 
we study life not on a hundred million year time scale or a million or a, even a billion. We study the whole history of life on earth because we're trying to figure out when life got started, how probable life is. Those are the, the bread and butter of astrobiological research. And so that's what we got involved in. Charlie, Go quick question here. Yes. Has there been any evidence of life found outside of earth and could it be confused with us taking it there? You know, bacteria riding along with our spacecraft and our people, and that's how we discover it, that it was from us. That is a, this contaminate, that's called forward contamination, and that is a big worry because it's almost impossible to completely sterilize any spacecraft that goes to the moon or Mars. And so the worry is that in 10 years or 20 years, when we get very sophisticated, sensitive equipment on Mars looking for life, that we will detect the life that we ourselves have brought there. That's called forward uh, contamination, and that is certainly a worry. And most of the effort is in reverse contamination, and that is people are worried about Martian viruses or bacteria coming, being attaching to a spacecraft and then being brought back. I am much, much less worried about that, basically because I was taught about the the lunar program where they had quarantine for the astronauts when they came back from the moon. And the people in charge of the quarantine were essentially experts in wheat rust, which was the major problem that this institute had to deal with. And so they were essentially, so it was really a a boondoggle, a waste of money. And uh, it was just based on fear, I guess. So I suspect that when we get those instruments on Mars, we will detect the type of bacteria that we have brought there ourselves. The, the reason what they should do to prevent that is to be do a much better job at figuring out what are the types of bacteria that are on these spacecraft and in these institutes where they are building these spacecraft and look in every nook and cranny, swab everywhere, and then say, okay, this is the type of bacteria that we cannot really remove. And so that's what we should expect on Mars. This is another another good story is that about 10 years ago, some uh, some astrobiologists were looking for bacteria or life in the upper atmosphere. So they created a balloon with a little, a little box in it. And the idea was the box would go up into the atmosphere, let's say 40 kilometers, open up, collect a sample, close down, and then bring it back to Earth. And they did this. And when they analyzed it, they indeed found bacteria. But what they found was the bacteria that was all around the launch site because the bacteria had gotten onto the edge of the equipment when they lifted the thing up the opened the door that bacteria came into the box when they closed it they had gotten they had essentially trapped the bacteria that was in the launch site but they hadn't thoroughly thoroughly sampled the bacteria at the launch site and those are the types of errors that can easily be made and it's it's easy to look in hindsight hindsight is you know, 2020, but that's essentially what happens again and again. And so uh, that's, so you're right. Uh, we, we could find the life that we ourselves have put there. Another problem is that we don't really know what life is. So uh, a lot of people think, oh, there's life and there's non-life, but that's not the question. That's not clear at all. The most uh, egregious example of a boundary case are the most abundant organisms on earth. And these are viruses. If you ask your friendly biologists, are viruses alive, the fir- you get half of them saying yes and half of them saying no. But I, I, I looked at this issue very carefully, more carefully, and the, and the results are not half yes, half no. Rather, a quarter of biologists say yes, viruses are alive. A quarter say no, they're not alive. 
a quarter say, I don't know, or it's uncertain. And Mm. the remaining quarter say, that question is undefined because we don't know what life is. Last time we talked about that, but this time I wanted to ask you, how did you then, how did this progress to cancer? You know, in looking at, uh, you know, cosmobiology, cancer. So Paul and I were, you know, deep in the weeds of, okay, when did, how did life evolve? What were the first billion years of life? The next billion years, what happened during the previous four billion years? How did life change over that time? And that's what, uh, that's what astrobiology is about. The entire history of life on earth. And then at that time, the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute, they were getting lots and lots and lots of data and so much data from genomic sequencing of cancer and normal cells that they said, we are biologists. We don't know how to deal with data. Let's ask the physicists. They know all about numbers and data crunching. So one of the grants from the NIH, Paul and colleagues at at Arizona State University applied for, and they got a grant. Now, but this was not, there were about 10 other centers around the U.S. who were essentially hiring physicists as as numerical crunching guns to help biologists understand the data that was coming in 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 reams. Now, interestingly, Paul and Paul invited me to be part of this. And instead, like most of these groups had, hey, we have a new physicist here who has a new instrument who can more successfully sequence these things, or we can arrange the data in a better way to understand it, or we have a better instrument of some kind. That's typically the role that physicists play in in hospitals but paul and i coming being astrobiologists said wait a minute what is cancer paul always likes to ask fundamental questions and so do i and so we were saying instead of crunching numbers we were asking fundamental almost philosophical questions what is cancer and then it seemed in the we were reading the literature and some of the older literature said hey cancer is an atavism and they just kind of were waving their hands and they said that and i said well that makes perfect sense Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What is an atavism, by the way? Okay. The word atavism means essentially like great-great-grandfather or something in Latin. And an atavism is something – now, when you were, uh, let's say, three or four months old inside your mother's womb, you had a tail. And in between your fingers, there was webbing. And when whales are, are baby, are embryos, they also have feet. So what these are, are aspects of the morphology of a multicellular creature, which used to be present in the adult form. But during embryogenesis, during the development of embryo, those features went away. For example, the webbing between your fingers that you had as, a, as an embryo got eaten away. It was got, got sculpted away. So now you have fingers that are separated. But earlier on, you, we had webbed feet, webbed hands. Uh, so similarly, it's like we, kind of a, a biological anachronism or something? 
it's sometimes called a genetic throwback or an anachronism. Um, it, but importantly, what I'm describing is development and how in early development you have features that disappear. And atavism is when those features do not disappear as an adult. A good example is uh, are the, sometimes you'll have an adult horse with three toes. We know from the evolution of horses that they used to have five toes, then it went to three, and then it went to one. So when a horse, so when a horse is born and develops with three toes, that's an atavism. Another atavism is called supernumerary nipples. You know, right now you and I have two nipples, but some people have three nipples or four nipples, and it's just beneath the nipples that we have. That's called a supernumerary nipple, and we know that this is a feature of our ancestors because our ancestors had more than two nipples, kind of more like pigs or uh, or cows or dogs. Oh. So these, there's a whole series of things, maybe dozens and dozens. If you look up atavism on the, in the Wikipedia, you will see a whole list of them. I won't go through the list, but anyway, atavisms are th- features from earlier times in phylogeny, earlier times in the evolution, that have not been successfully suppressed and therefore appear at, in the adult form. So you're thinking what? Cancer is a, is a form of an atavism? Cancer, we're, the model, we, our model is called the atavistic theory of cancer. And that is when cancer cell, now, now the atavisms I just described are morphological atavisms. And that is in shape, like tails and new nipples and things. But also the idea is you can have physiological atavisms. So, for example, you and I are breathing oxygen right now. and But oxygen has only been in the atmosphere about two and a half billion years. Before that, our ancestors couldn't deal with oxygen. And so if we have cells that revert to not using oxygen, but uh, doing what we did before that, that would be an atavism. And in fact... It's useful to have this ability in our cells uh, because when we exercise really, really, really a lot, we don't get enough oxygen to our muscles. They then change their metabolism uh, and then they produce lactose. And so our cells themselves have this ability to deal with an oxygen-free atmosphere. And it's very, very useful. It's a holdover from two and a half billion years ago because there was no oxygen then. And so all cells uh, had to do this. But then when oxygen came along, a more efficient in an oxygenated atmosphere metabolism came along. That's what our normal cells normally do. But in certain circumstances, like too much exercise, then you you revert to this earlier way. And so our model, our atavistic model is, says that these cancer cells have reverted back to doing things that our cells used to do a long time ago, but these abilities have been stored inside our cells because sometimes, occasionally, these old abilities are, in fact, useful even today. That's why they're still around. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So what would be the the point of, do you think that then cancer comes because of um, like a forced adaptation? And the the way that they go is they go back to their, you know, their previous arrangements from, you know, millions and millions of years ago. Is that what causes this this atavism? Well, let's think about the non-cancer atavisms. Let's say a horse, let's say a whale. Sometimes porpoises are born with legs. 
So what has gone wrong? Usually they don't have legs, but sometimes they're born with legs. So what has gone wrong? What has gone wrong is that there are genetic regulatory networks, essentially genes that control, they turn off the development of hind legs. Now, and then you have a normal porpoise. But occasionally, something will go wrong with those genes, those suppressing genes. And then, presto changeo, the limb, the leg develops like it did before the evolution of those repressors. So when the repressors are damaged, out comes the old stuff, essentially. Now, so cancer, we think, is damaged to either, well, damaged to genetics, it could be, or epigenetics. And that is the normal functioning of the cell is damaged in some way, and that causes the reappearance of the old way of doing things for the cell, just like the old way of walking for a whale was on having hind legs, and those come out. Your thought is it's what? It's still a random process that just affects these uh, regulatory networks, and that's why the atavism appears? Or do well, you think well, it's more yeah. of a, a directed response to, to pressures, which causes adaptation, but it's a maladaptation? Okay, so what you just suggested is there's a, right now, the probably the most, the consensus, the most accepted view on cancer evolution is the following. There's damage to the cell from all kinds of things, UV or chemical toxins, all kinds of ways to damage cells. And then that creates variety in the genomes of these cells. And then through a process of internal Darwinism, in other words, evolution among cells that are already in your body, that then they get selected for adaptive features, which are novel, and they then allow these cells to survive inside your body. Even they, they are your own cells, but they are acting uh, bad, but they have adaptations that have evolved out of all this damage. That's the consensus model. Uh, it's called the somatic mutation model. And that's one that we're pushing back on. And the reason we're pushing back on it is because we think all of the adaptations that cancer has, the ability to spread, the ability to uh, divide very quickly, the, the, ability, the ability to create blood vessels that then bring the nutrients, all of these things that make cancer so dangerous are features, are adaptations that are pre-existing. For example, when you have a, an embryo that comes down the fallopian tube, well, fallopian tubes get, gets fertilized, it then does something called implantation. And during implantation, this, this very young embryo has to send out shoots to then put in a, essentially arteries that then get implanted in the, wall, in the wall of the womb. And that's a very aggressive procedure that, that this little fellow has to do in order to get the nutrients from the mother. But that's what has to happen. So these genes that do this are very, very necessary, but they're only necessary during the implantation of the embryo in the wall of the womb. Yeah. However, but then they have to be suppressed. They say, okay, we don't need that tool anymore. Get out of here and you suppress it. But if that suppression becomes damaged, then out come these abilities to do what the embryo had to do earlier. And that's what we think. In other words, all of the abilities of cancer that are so bad and so adaptive for the cancer are pre-existing rather than the result of evolution on the variation that has been produced by damage. So, I mean, you know, some cancers occur in children. I don't know if anyone's born with it, but, uh, you know, a lot of them occur later in life. Well, why would it occur when someone's 65 years old and not, uh, you know, throughout the rest of their life? 
Well, cancers do occur at all ages, but there's a definite correlation in for getting old when you, you get more cancer. Cancer is more prominent or more prevalent when you get older. There are some very specific cancers that children get. Typically, some of these cancers evolve. Your body right now is made up of cells. Some of them, like the lining of your intestines, have to do mitosis all the time because you're essentially digesting your inner wall of your stomach and your intestines, so it has to be replenished. So that means you have to have mitosis going on all the time, or your hair is growing. Uh, so those are two examples. And when you, when you take current cancer medicine, it is anti-mitotic. It means it stops the division of cells, and that process of needing the division of cells is what your hair needs, is what your eyebrows need, is what your gut needs, your gastrointestinal tract needs. It needs cell division in order to act normally. Other parts of your body don't need to reproduce as much. For example, some of your bone cells or some of your, I don't know, your muscles, they don't need to have mitosis as much. Interestingly, cancer is more prevalent in the types of cells in your body where mitosis is allowed, where it is promoted. And so that's a that's something that's understandable because it can, cancer becomes a problem when it mitoses too much, and some cells in your body are already uh, mitosing at a healthy level. And then, but now I should I should point out at this point there's a something called the Hayflick limit. Have you heard of the Hayflick limit? Yeah, the number of cell divisions before the cell goes senescent and dies. Let's say. Well, it doesn't necessarily die. It just it's that you start out as one cell and you end up as let's say, uh, I don't know, maybe a trillion cells, maybe fifty trillion. Anyway, you have to go from one to fifty trillion, and then you have to stop dividing, or rather, when you divide some more, you have to get rid of some. So the Hayflick limit is tells you how many cell divisions, let's say, on average, a human cell will go through. Now, the Hayflick limit is something that evolved about a billion years ago. Because you wanted to produce a multicellular organism, not some single-celled organism that had no limit whatsoever on its ability to divide, 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 divide. So you have to have, so the Hayflick limit had to evolve. That means mitotic suppressors had to be applied in specific regions of this incipient multicellular organism so that the thing was organized and so you could have mitosis in your GI tract, but not inside your, I don't know, cartilage in your nose or something. So all of this had to be regulated. All of it had to evolve. And when something goes wrong with that regulation, cells revert to what they were doing earlier. And that essentially means doing things also that our embryos do very early. So there's, there are two aspects. is There's phylogenetically ancient, and there's ontogeny or development early. And these two seem to be correlated, as we discussed earlier, when you had webbing between your fingers as an embryo. So there are specific uh, atavisms that show up for certain kinds of cancers or in general for illness or, uh, you know, like how how do you how is it determined? Do you think, um, you know, how far back the retrograde evolution will go and what abilities will be unlocked versus others? Well, cancer can people have tried this and tested this model. Essentially, cancer cannot go further back than, I guess, uh, unicellular unicellular life, because if, <laughs> cancer has to, is a coordinated effort. 
when you have a tumor, those tumor cells are communicating with each other and they're together building networks of blood that give the the cancer, the tumor uh, nutrients. And so it's a, you know, there is a single cell stage which goes through the blood and then it goes outside of the arteries and then it's metastasized. When cancer metastasizes, it spreads. It spreads as kind of individual cells that then leave the, leave the, the circulation and then embed themselves in various places. So, so that individual life is also something that's still part of us today. For example, you know, your nose cells don't migrate around the body, but your immune cells and your blood cells do that migration as individual cells is part of the normal functioning of a human being. And that's something that you can think of as being a very old, very early regulated thing. For another example, when you have you and I make sperm cells, if you cro- look at the cross section of the tail of a sperm cell, it's very much like the tails of protists. If you cut them, they also have these things called underlipodia, sometimes falsely called flagella. But if you cut, look at the cross section, they are almost identical. So this is something that has been well conserved, and essentially that's what you're doing when you're making sperm is tapping into a very old genetic pathway that is useful. And so you hold on to it. Again, what is the, do you think that nature has a playbook and there's only a certain number of, uh, of forms that have been rendered throughout time and that these atavisms will by necessity constitute some of these earlier forms? Or do you think it's open-ended and it can, you know, atavism could be anything? No, I wouldn't say no, no, it, not at all. I would say that I wouldn't say that nature has a playbook. Nature has a history. Nature has a phylogenetic history during which lots of adaptive features, adaptive physiologies, adaptive forms have evolved. I have cellular memory. Then, I mean, how would these how would these old abilities be called up? I mean, would that be a form of cellular memory, or do you no, think it's no, just random that they're, they happen to go back in time? No, they're called up when the the newly evolved suppressors get damaged remember you in order to stop the development of a hind leg in a whale you have to have newly developed suppressors that say hey you hind legs you're going to be a whale we don't need you anymore suppress suppress and so that's what happens in normal whales when something goes wrong with that suppression as there sometimes do there could be a genetic mutation and then the, it's not the hind legs are not suppressed. Out come the hind legs. Similarly, if you have a normal cell inside your body, it's doing its thing. But when you have damage, mutations of some kind to the suppressors, then out come the earlier abilities that the, the cell really knows how to do well. And then it acts like cancer does. Yeah, but are there abilities that come out that were not part of that, uh, that organism's uh, you know, embryogenesis? Are, well, there, are that, there any abilities that come that don't correlate that ha- that could not have come from that organism, you know, again, during its, its development? That is a very, very important question. The, our stance on this we're, is that, no, there are no new or novel abilities that cancers learn. And so far, the data seems to be supporting our model. And that is none of the abilities of cancer are novel. As a matter of fact, when you look, Hanahan and Weinberg wrote a paper about here are the hallmarks of cancer. Now, the fact that there are hallmarks, there are common features of cancer, these are the things that are characteristic of cancer, all kinds of cancer. And in fact, they are, can all be associated with atavistic traits. 
Now, if you're, but you are essentially supposed, you're suspension, you're suspend, you're essentially hypothesizing something called the somatic mutation theory. And that is, you're saying, aren't there any new ones? Well, if there were new ones, then all cancers would be different because they're evolving in different bodies and they should be independent. And they're having well, different. I they, uh, they are different in that they're very heterogeneous. You know, I don't know they're how only... far the heterogeneity goes, but you know. no. Here's how far the heterogeneity goes. First of all, the genetic the, the genetics is very heterogeneous because there's a lot of noise there because you're da- damaging all kinds of things. But the easiest things to damage during, you know, let's say UV or chemical toxins are the most recently evolved features of the organism. Why is that? Because anything that's really, really, really necessary is highly conserved and protected from all kinds of onslaughts. The more new, the more newly evolved things haven't learned to be that protected, and so they are more susceptible to UV damage and chemical damage and other types of damage. So again, so far you haven't seen anything that doesn't come up in the embryogenesis of that particular organism when it gets cancer, well, for instance. Well, I, I sh- you shouldn't... You, you use the word embryogenesis, but that's only one of the places where, let's say, old physiologies are important. For example, um, there's something called the Warburg effect. That you have you heard of that? Yeah, the mitochondria damaged, and that's so at least the fermentation versus oxfos and makes uh, cancer. Which right. really, that's how cancer respirates, supposedly. That's right. And and importantly, here's the important point. The, the Warburg effect is when it does what you just said, but it does it in an, an environment where it has oxygen. Normal cells, when they are doing glycolysis, and then oxygen, they do it when there's no oxygen. The oxygen gets comes back, and the normal cells revert to aerobic respiration. But cancer cells, when there is oxygen, are acting like there is not oxygen. That's why it's called aerobic glycolysis. Essentially, that's a physiology that the cells had, all cells had to do before there was a lot of oxygen around. So there again, aerobic glycolysis or the Warburg effect can be easily explained by the atavistic model as a pre-existing, earlier very useful, but currently only useful in non-oxygenic environments and we sometimes have that as i pointed out with runners who who, ha- who just use up too much oxygen and then their cells have to survive by doing glycolysis but then they revert uh back to normal function physiology when the oxygen appears cancer cells do not because they have lost this new ability one thing I, I need to point out is you know a substantial part of what makes us us is our microbiome the microbiome would have its own you know, I guess atavistic adaptations, and the microbiome oh, no, trades oh, metabolites wait, 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 with wait, art. Wait, 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 wait. Let me let me clear it up. When when I'm talking about atavism, I'm talking in the context of a multicellular organism. Now, you and I are multicellular organisms. So are dogs. So are trees. So are fungi. These are sure. packets of billions and trillions of cells that have organized, that have become differentiated. You know, you don't have just one type of cell. You have many, many different types of cells. And that's why that when something goes wrong with your muscle or your or your your immune system, there are so many different kinds of cancers because there are so many different types of cells in your body because there's so many different things that can go wrong. But as you get more and more advanced stages of cancer, your cells seem to be reverting to fewer and fewer types of cells. That's why it's called sometimes called 
de-differentiation. They're becoming more, that's why the stem cell hypothesis also fits into the atavistic model, because in some sense, you are reverting to non-differentiated cells, the kind you had earlier on. I'm just asking you to consider the fact that bacteria change and mutate tremendously. So do viruses, so do fungi, protists, they all comprise our microbiome. What about those, you know, if someone has cancer, there's going to be an interaction, a trading of metabolites, who knows what else. Perhaps our microbiome can also experience you know, a, a reversion to earlier behaviors and earlier pathways that also influences cancer, not just our somatic cells. Well, I mean, if you're saying that the microbiome... I, I, I say this because our microbiomes are so important to us and we're a holobiont and we're constituted of them. And, you know, I mean, they're oh, pretty necessary, I, I, you know, for health. That's why I say it. Absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. But there's one thing you're forgetting, and that is the microbiome are organisms that can evolve and they are individuals that do not have they're they're not nearly as organized together as a multicellular organism is they they, are they do make biofilms that are complex geometries absolutely you're absolutely right however there's a big big difference between what you just described as the evolution of of the microbiome to any extent of integration whether they're very integrated like in a film or they're individuals like in some other aspects of it, I'm sure. But the big difference is that when you get cancer, you die. You do not pass cancer on to anybody around you. It's not contagious. Microbiome is just like any other ecology, and that is it continues, it continues, it continues. And so if it comes up with a new adaptation, that new adaptation is passed on to the next generation. Cancer cells do not do that. They kill the host. Therefore, cancer cells are really are a bad model for a group of cells that are evolving but that is but, the but, there, but there there are a few cancers that are contagious like you know especially from your neck cancer. of the woods yes I, I, yes i know yes. it's yeah the tasmanian devils bite each yes. other and they give face cancer and then yes. some of the sexually transmitted diseases also yes. may carry cancer hpv right. etc so know, there right. are some that do that that's right there are very very few that do that and they're easily operable because they're essentially like separate organisms that have stuck on the face and you can just cut them out and they haven't attacked the rest of the body. I don't think they metastasize. They are contagious, but they don't metastasize. And it's not something that's, that it's not central to our efforts on the war in cancer because uh, it's not something that humans get, or maybe they do get it, but very, very, very rare. So we don't need to worry about it. We need to worry about the things that kill human beings. And those are the types of cancer that I've been talking about. Yeah. Question here. Do you consider cancer a separate life form especially no, when there's I, let's say a primary tumor and metastases because you know again it's it's changed to the point where it's very different from somatic cells and it has its own you know uh, drive to survive and proliferate and all that so perhaps it is its own life form well no i i don't think so at all because life forms continue and when what we're talking about cancer is you cancer does not the kind of cancer that humans have to worry about does not get passed on to the children or spread around the neighborhood it dies with the patient the reason why that's important is because anything that has been select supposedly selected for during the internal darwinism of cancer does not get passed on so in the next generation the this cancer that starts in your children for example in 50 years 
will have started fresh and new. It will not have any advantage of the adaptations that evolved in your cancer, for example, or your grandfather's cancer, or your great-grandfather's cancer. Cancer is very different because it dies. It doesn't continue. What does yeah, but if I, get, in, if I get infected by if I get infected by a parasite, it's a separate life form, or I get a bacterial infection or a viral, well, viral, who knows? But you know, I can get these infections, and some of them may lead to the parasite or the bacteria killing me. But yet, they still are separate life forms. So why that's, why couldn't cancer be a separate life form? Because that parasite in you could kill you, but it ha- in order to not be killed with you, it has to spread before you die into another patient. That's the whole thing about viruses, bacteria, or parasites. They have to continue and reproduce. Cancers do not do that. Right, but just because cancer doesn't appear to have a mechanism by which it can transmit out of the organism in which it infects, I mean, that's just one parameter, perhaps, of what constitutes life. If no, it has all the, the other parameters, of, no, why couldn't the, it be a life form? Because continuation and reproduction and continuing evolution is what life is about. And if you have a life form that lives for 10 seconds and then just dies, you don't have a life form if it doesn't reappear in as a, in, it, does, it doesn't, inheritance is part of what I think should life should be. Or rather, let's not talk about whether it's a life form. Let's talk about how is it, how is it similar and how is it different from the microbiome, for example, or from a parasite. And the main difference is that cancer does not leave progeny in the next generation. As I said, if your grandchildren get cancer when they're 60 or 70, it will not have inherited that from you or anything that evolved in you during the, let's say, a decade that you had cancer, but rather it has to start afresh. And the fact that it too will resemble your cancer is because its physiology is pre-existing in the human genome in the same way that forming a back leg in a whale is pre-existing in a whale. Well, I know this isn't as strong, but you know, if I have cancer and it epigenetically changes me, which undoubtedly it does, and then I have children, perhaps they may be uh, they, they may have a predilection towards cancer, or maybe it has actually changed. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I test testicular cancer, let's say, and it, it changed the underlying uh, composition of my right. sperm. And therefore, you know, when I have children, maybe now they have, at the very least, a predilection, or maybe they have a genetic uh, disposition that, towards that's right. Maybe it, you know, maybe it passes in that way, but not the actual cell. Yeah, itself. I, 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 I would tend to start to agree with you here, because to some extent, we know that epigenetic changes are passed along, maybe even to the second or third generation and these changes now so that's why one of the reasons why we want to look at epigenetics in so much detail because in to some extent when cancer cells are acting haywire it's because their epigenomes have probably been changed or rearranged into patterns that existed earlier on in development so yes it can be passed on in that direction but i would i would say not it you're passing on it's kind of like a there are such things as genetic-based cancers. In other words, when you have mutations in the genome that don't produce that don't produce the normal organism, but rather it makes you susceptible to cancer. Matter of fact, there are genes that make you more susceptible, and you pass those genes on. Yes, you are passing on a susceptibility to cancer. That's certainly the case. If that's what you're talking about, I agree completely. But if you're trying to talk about something that has evolved in you newly, and then gets passed on, that's something that is much more questionable. Yeah, I mean, throughout my life, like I said, I've experienced, you know, 
massive epigenetic change. So in that way, again, it's not a direct passing on, but maybe it's a, an indirect passing on somehow. Well, I, I suspect that the epigenetic change that has occurred in you or in me or in any multicellular organism as it develops and gets older has already been choreographed, has already been selected for. And uh, as a matter of fact, aging is a, probably a good example of that. The aging looks to be genetic. And so what's happening is not you're not wearing things out. Your cells have your your genome has arranged such that the epigenomes change. So you no longer repair what you used to repair and you get older. This is genetically programmed senescence. And this, too, is an issue that biologists are wrestling with because there's something called pleiotrophic antagonism, which essentially means that when you have a mutation, and it helps you early and hurts you all. And if it helps, it does both good and bad. Well, then the good is shifted towards the beginning of life and the bad is shifted towards the end. And that's why you die because you have an accumulation of these bad things after you have uh, reproduced. That's the, the main, that's also the consensus theory of why we have uh, genetic senescence. So if I if I look at the twins that went into space, I forget their name, but one of them was in the space station for a year. Yeah. You know, they showed that he experienced hundreds of epigenetic changes, which a lot of them regressed. I don't know about all, but once he came back to Earth. So to me, that shows, okay, his body underwent a change of environment. It, it was a forced adaptation, which the body accomplished by epigenetic yes, change. Yes. And then when those stimuli were removed, it reverted. Yes. Yes, so, I mean, why, why wouldn't cancer also be, again, a maladaptation? Well, the, what you just talked about is an adaptation. That adaptation has to be organized. You're saying, okay, let's suppose that when they get into weightlessness, you know, you get methylation of this, this position in your genome. And then when the weightlessness goes away, you get the changes back to where it used to be. That is a, an adaptation. And the reason that it acts like that is because in the past, all kinds of things happened millions of years ago, billions of years ago, and it, there were var- variation and then susceptibility to, oh, an environmental thing. Let's, when that happens in the environment, I'm going to have this epigenetic change. That is an adaptation. And then that adaptation is controlled by some gene and it gets passed on to your children. And so that's what, if not only this guy, this identical twin, but and take you, if you send it out in outer space, you will probably have some similar epigenetic changes that would be adaptive to that environment or not just any space. Space is a really bad example because that's not something that we experienced in the past so much, but let's say when it gets, maybe it's a good example because we've never, no organism has experienced, you know, being in, let's say zero gravity. Right. In earth's history, so far as we know. So maybe it's a good one. Well, there was no precedent. So the adaptation to that, it may tell you something very well, this, this, then you get into what's called the problem with uh, the spandrels of St. Marco, whether something is an adaptation or is it something that just came along on the ride for something that's being, you're adapting to something else. So this, for example, let's talk about reading. You and I both read. I can see you have glasses. I have glasses and uh, we can both read, but writing is only about 5,000 years old. So the ability to read, how in the world did that evolve? And if you if you pretend that reading is something that's totally unconnected to previous existence of human beings, then you are presented with this anomaly. How in the world did we evolve so quickly to be able to read? 
But if you look at what you need to read, and that is visual acuity in a broad general way, then yes, visual acuity did evolve in the past and helped us, you know, look for fruit hidden behind leaves and trees when we were climbing around trees looking for fruit. So in other words, these abilities are correlated with each other. And so that's the way you have to explain reading or writing or any new ability that we can do now. It's not completely new, although we sometimes pretend it is. Significant. Okay, I understand. I mean, so with your model of cancer, what what light does it shed for you? What new thoughts or ways to treat it? Or I don't know if that's your angle. No, no. Well, what we're trying to do is understand cancer. And so the question is, what does that have to do with therapy? How How does that help? Now, here's probably the biggest, most important misunderstanding of the model. Like yesterday, for example, I read a paper and in Science Magazine about, hey, we now know we have now have a much, much better map of the protein-protein interactions in human beings and in cancer and how they're different, right? So according to the atavistic model, the protein-protein interactions that are in cancer evolved a long, long time ago. They get repressed in normal cells, and so we don't know about them much, but normal cells have this whole normal range of protein-protein interaction. So In this new paper, they discovered, ah, cancer cells don't have the same ones. They have different ones. And so in, uh, I know this because I've talked to hundreds of oncologists. They say, okay, this is a difference in cancer. Let's target those new things that we've discovered that cancer has that normal cells supposedly don't have. So what that means is now in the atavistic model, normal cells have those early ones, they only show up latently, show, only show up during certain periods of development, but they're still there in every cell. But normal cells, when you look at them superficially, they say, oh, they're doing this. Now, when normal cells lose the ability to do normal protein-protein interactions, they revert to older ones. So when an oncologist says, okay, now I'm going to target these older ones, the older ways of, of behaving or physiology are the most protected. They are very, very important to the cell, just like mitosis is important. And then along comes the Hayflick limit and says, oh, you have to be suppressed. Now, if you lose the Hayflick limit, or if you lose the ability to do these normal protein-protein interactions, and you have cancer, and then you target that, you're essentially targeting all cells at the same time, in the same way that when you target mitosis, you're targeting all the normal cells in your body that need to reproduce. So essentially, when you target what you've just discovered in cancer, you're targeting the strengths of cancer, not the weakness. The weakness of those cancer cells is their inability to do the normal things. And that's what needs to be targeted. And that's what the whole whole strategy is just the reverse of what normal oncologists do to target cancer. They find something new about cancer and they say, let's kill it. But then they realize, hey, by the way, I'm creating all kinds of problems, all kinds of side effects in normal cells. I wonder why that is. I guess it's not just the cancer cells that are doing this. That's the type of, of shooting yourself in the foot that occurs with almost all cancer therapy. It makes sense what you're saying. I like it. My only worry is that when someone has cancer, are they essentially de- de-differentiating back into a gigantic stem cell or collection of them? And if you target what what um, abilities cancer has lost, what if that affects like all the stem cells in the body or in the immune system or other systems that, you know, 
need to have varying abilities or changing abilities over time. Well, the normal stem cells can uh, do have nor the the ability to do the normal things later on. So I don't think now. So here's here's a therapy that we proposed in 2014. Now. The, you may know about the history of the immune system. There's an adaptive one. Crudely speaking, there's an adaptive immune system, which has evolved in the last 500 million years, an innate immune system that evolved earlier on. Now, the adaptive immune system is what allows you to have uh, antibodies that go around looking. It's a, it's a learning system for the immune system. The innate one is a genetic one that's not, does not easily change. It's like built-in vaccine versus hey, this is a new development of a vaccine. That's, that's essentially the, the difference between an innate, more fixed immune system and the adaptive one that's more flexible. If cancer cells is, if our, in our atavistic model, cancer cells have reverted to a more innate, and so they do not have the ability to do adaptive immunity, or rather, they don't have the ability to talk to the adaptive immune system anymore. And most oncologists define this as, cancer suppressing adaptive immunity in our model it's not suppressing adaptive immunity it's just inability to to deal with it in the same way that cancer cells don't do normal respiration when there's oxygen it's just a shutting down of the more recently evolved features now if that's the case then what here's the simple model you take a person and you as normal cells have access to the adaptive immune system so you say okay i'm going to give you a vaccine uh, there's a there's something bad here. Let's say it's a some virus, and here's a virus. Here's a vaccine for it. And when I give the normal cells the, the vaccine, then they they're protected from this virus. So then I then infect that body with the virus explicitly. Normal cells that have access to adaptive immunity can fight it off because you've already tested this. But the cancer cells we think will not have access to the adaptive immune system and so they will be they will be preferentially targeted why because they have lost the something the ability that's you see the difference in the strategy between targeting the weakness and targeting the strength yeah i see what you mean well that, that's interesting that you see because i've ta- as i said i've talked to dozens and dozens of oncologists about this they are so fixated on targeting the what they have just discovered about how cancer works that they are doing that's doing the opposite of the therapy that our model suggests. And again and again and again. And when I've presented this model to therapists, I can see them stumbling over this, they're trying to reverse it in their head, and they just can't seem to do it. And so I'm very uh, I guess I'm the thing that I'm most disappointed in is the I guess the what's it called when you get fixated on a target, target fixation when you're a bomber. You just go in and in and in. And I'm trying to reverse this so that you're targeting what cancer cells, the weakness of them, and that is what they have lost and can no longer do. And that requires a little bit more thought, such as the the experiment that I just proposed. Well, so has this gotten to the point where you've spoken to anyone about, you know, maybe setting up a clinical trial? And if so, what would that look like? Uh, I've spoken to lots of people about this, but as I said, I'm running into a brick wall in most cases. Occasionally, well, well, anyway, I've run into a brick wall, but here's here's another aspect that we haven't talked about, and that is there is this atavistic model makes predictions about the ages of the cancer cell of the genes that are responsible for the physiology of cancer cells. And another and our prediction is that these the genes will be preferentially older 
than the physiology of normal cells. And that has been borne out by something called phyllostratigraphy. There's a guy named David Good and some others in uh, Serbia that have looked at the ages of genes and then looked at the genes that are active in cancer, and they found that this is the case. So that's one piece of evidence that supports the atavistic model. But uh, as I said, uh, I haven't gotten, matter of fact, there's just an article that's going to come out in bioessays probably next week or the week after about an oncologist who said, I just ran into this atavistic model. Wow, it's been developed by two astrophysicists. Isn't that interesting? I think they have something here. We should start paying attention. That's essentially the the degree to which current oncologists have integrated this model into their thoughts. Yeah, I mean, well, I find a lot of people are very resistant to other points of view. So, you know, unfortunately, that's that's pretty universal. Well, I I don't mind it. It's just that we need to get more evidence and it needs to be tested and taken seriously. I think I just wish they were more open-minded. One thing that that can explain this is that oncologists are not uh, trained in evolution. They know almost nothing about evolution. As a matter of fact, I would say the doc, because they're interested in curing people, they, you know, people show up, they're dying and they have to figure out a cure. They do not essentially do not have time to worry about the evolutionary mechanisms behind the, the, the cancer. When there are some more theoretically minded people who are not in the clinic, they're not doing translational medicine, they're, they're trying to understand cancer, they have developed this somatic mutation theory in which they use the word evolution in a very, very different way than the atavistic model. They say the cells are evolving inside the body, and that can explain the features of cancer. Our model says that's completely wrong. We uh, These features have evolved a long, long time ago. They're pre-existing. There's nothing new about them. And uh, this is the therapy that this uh, atavistic model suggests. Somebody should try it, uh, but they, to a large extent, they haven't. So going forward, what would be your next big step if you're able to get people to listen? Is it a clinical trial to test? Well, the, uh, this no, I, I, I don't, I'm not qualified to do clinical trials or even think about them. What I am qualified to do is, is read the papers in which people, which standard model has been invoked to explain the experimental data that they have gotten from clinical trials and explain it in the context of the atavistic model in a much better way. And once I can do that, that might shift some of the uh, thinking about the theoretical interpretations of the models. Well, very good. Charlie, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work? Where can they go? Well, I guess you just, you can Google Charlie Lineweaver, C-H-A-R-L-E-Y, not an IE, but an EY at the end, Charlie Lineweaver. And uh, you can see a whole bunch of stuff. You can see my website at Mount Stromlo Observatory. You can also uh, see some of the cancer papers we've done. We have two pe- cancer papers this year, one in bioessays and another in a book about uh, current research in, in cancer. Um, th- those are available on my website. Also, by the way, I think we might, I guess we haven't talked about extraterrestrials, but I've just created a course called are we alone dot us and uh, it's online. So if you just search for are we alone dot us, you should you should find the website that I've created. Essentially, I just went around to conferences, astrobiology conferences, asking the world's experts, are we alone and why yes, why no, etc. That's where I did the research on the viral the viral surveys of biologists and came up with those numbers I gave you earlier. Well, very good. Well, Charlie, again, thanks for coming back. And I love to argue with you. It's fun. And it, uh, we, I think we both learned something. So I appreciate you coming back to the podcast. All right. Well, thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.